You're about to hear our annual forecast episode, where I have the privilege of sitting down with Leslie Marks and Steve Walker, two CIOs, and ask them all sorts of questions about what happened this year and what to expect going into 2024. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with our two CIOs, Leslie Marks and Steve Locke. Leslie, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Matt. Hi, Matt. Good to be here again. This is our annual sort of forward-looking perspective podcast. We call it the Blue Book, referenced, uh, of course, based on the Blue Book document that we put together that can be found on our website. Uh, And uh, really looking forward to hearing your perspectives on what is to come uh, in 2024. But before we do that, maybe we do uh, take a look back at 2023. So Steve, maybe start with you. Can you reflect on 2023 and what played out as you expected and what surprised you? Well, certainly, um, it was uh, another volatile year in fixed income, and I was, I'll start, I guess, on that theme. Um, you know, we had a um, distinct and significant bear market over the past couple of years heading into this year. Yields were rising significantly through 2022 and into the first part of this year with more uh, Federal Reserve, Bank of Canada, ECB rate hikes that were on the horizon. And uh, we expected to see um, the, the policymakers continue to push monetary policy tighter uh, in the beginning part of the year, and they did that, although we did expect to see it level off, and and uh, we expected to see this uh, uh, prevailing view of inflation uh, being stickier as a theme that played throughout the year, but with central bank tightening uh, continuing into the middle part of the year, we expected to see some progress on inflation, and in fact, we did. Uh, if you look at where CPI peaked during the year, we, pre- we were projecting would peak around the summertime and uh, start to come down. And so in the second half of the year, the inflation story has changed and the central bank stance has changed. So these are largely in line with what we were projecting at the beginning of the year. Those are the, I guess that's where we, we really think we had it uh, nailed. I mean, one of the things that did surprise us though, was that the economy continued to be quite robust in the face of these two years of rate hikes, 500 basis points of rate hikes from the Bank of Canada, uh, 550 from the U.S. Fed. And uh, that, that, uh, that scenario uh, with that much monetary policy tightening uh, after two years, we expected to have a more dramatic effect on economic growth, slowing it down hmm. and possibly putting us on, on the verge of a recession. Um, so that that uh, scenario didn't really play out so much in the U.S. There was regionally it did play out. There was some evidence, you know, as we went through the second half of this year, Canadian economy, uh, for example, being much slower uh, than the U.S. So all in all, when you stack it up on the on the uh, interest rates, inflation side, and then the growth side, we got two of those three largely right. That's great, Steve. Uh, Leslie, maybe I'll uh, turn to you, ask you the same question. So as you reflect back on uh, 2023, what followed your expectations and what surprised you? My thinking about last year, reflecting, there's a Charles Dickens quote that comes to mind. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Uh, And everybody knows that part of the quote. But then it goes on to say, it was the age of wisdom and it was the age of foolishness. (laughs) And and I think that there there were some moments of wisdom and certainly some of foolishness. And I think the year 
as Steve said, largely played out as expected with the, at least for us, um, with the higher for longer interest rates being the most important trend of the year. And obviously this created a, a bit of an overhang for uh, bonds and, and equities in some cases, um, except with one exception, that being U.S. equities. And U.S. equities were, and Steve talked about the surprising resilience in the U.S. economy, were really saved by the U.S. consumer. And the U.S. consumer um, had the ability to continue to draw down their excess savings that they had accumulated during the pandemic. And what we observed was people, in, in spite of an inflationary backdrop, continued to spend without really any restraint. And I'm not sure if that's the foolishness part um, based on, you know, where, where we're at today, but sure. um, it, it was, you know, that would be sort of the best of times aspect. The worst of times I think was looking at corporate profits, which we had highlighted as, as a risk, um, as a headwind overall for equities and, and corporate profits continued to be weak throughout the year. It was basically a zero growth year, uh, year over year. Companies, um, in some cases, were able to utilize cost control or cost cutting to, to drive earnings. And that was part of the story that we saw in the concentration at the top of the pyramid, if you will, for the S&P 500, which turned out to have you know, a spectacular uh, year this year and the NASDAQ specifically because of the same right. trend in stocks. So part of the story was related to the cost cutting side. Um, but the other part, of course, was related to that kind of mainstream view around the impact of generative AI and, and the individual's ability to leverage AI uh, capability. So part of that was fundamental. Part of that, I think, was the focus for investors to really pay up for durable growth in the face of weaker economic growth in the backdrop. Great summary, and we'll touch on some of those themes uh, as we go through the uh, the podcast, as you wrote about it, uh, or the team has written about it extensively in the Blue Book. Uh, Steve, why don't we look go to forward-looking now? So let's start talking about expectations for 2024. I know in the Blue Book, and, and you referenced it during your last comments, about uh, higher for longer and stickier inflation, and that uh, the last mile is going to be proved to be more difficult so where are we now? I mean, inflation is meaningfully lower, but uh, still above the central bank target. So where do you see central banks and what do you think their actions will be in 2024? Okay, well, certainly the progress on inflation, as we talked about, has been significant now. And we look at some of the, uh, the ways that inflation has changed year over year, or when we think about even one to two years back, uh, it's been meaningful. Um, so goods prices have generally gone more or less into disinflation to deflation. There's some stickiness in, inside inflation. When you think about services, various things that have been, you know, dominating consumption by, uh, you know, in various markets this year, uh, and so those those prices have been a little bit stickier. One of the lagging price impacts on inflation is always real estate. Man, we think about the way that gets translated into inflation data in Canada and the U.S. Um, that's taking a little bit longer to come down, although we are seeing progress now in both the can both Canada and the U.S. So all in all, that that does portend that you know central banks can look at 2024 and say the inflation fight is well underway we don't need to raise rates anymore and if we look at what's priced into the market today that's indeed the the the, the context that we're looking at in bonds and in in fixed income markets overall 
is that central banks have, are no longer priced for rate hikes. In fact, they're priced for rate cuts. So the change in, in direction here for policy rates going forward is an interesting question as we start the year. Are we actually going to see now um, economies and inflation going so much into reverse or slowing down so significantly that central banks are able to cut rates by, in this case, we're looking at before the end of 2024, current pricing is for the Fed to cut rates by about 125 basis points and for the Bank of Canada to cut by about 100 basis points. So this is a, this is a meaningful change. Now, I'll remind you uh, that at various points in time over the last two years, we the market was pricing in on a forward view rate cuts from mm-hmm. the central banks, only to be uh, disappointed in that well, disappointed is a kind of awkward way of saying it, I guess. Disappointed that economic growth was stronger than expected. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's always a good thing, but uh, not not in the case of those who are pricing that uh, cuts into the front end of the bond curve. So we see uh, you know, that looking ahead here, though, there is a more meaningful potential for slower growth. And um, with slower growth, we would expect to see a little bit of a perhaps some easing coming back in. I think in particular for the Bank of Canada, this is uh, is more likely than it is for the U.S. Fed. Okay. As we look at the first half of next year, the Bank of Canada is dealing with some more significant uh, growth slowdown, in particular on interest rate sensitive areas of the economy, such as housing. Uh, so that that uh, is well documented in media, of course. But you know, when we think about 2024, what Canadians are facing. Canadian households are looking at a significant number of mortgage resets. Uh, those who had fixed rate mortgages from just a few years ago are going to see those reset higher. And of course, floating rate mortgages have, have been resetting all along the piece here with uh, the rate hikes the past two years. So when you put put that together in, into the equation of uh, what can consumers continue to do? Uh, how How is this impacting the day-to-day expenses of households? What are businesses therefore able to pass through in terms of pricing? Uh, this would suggest a slowing of the economy, and we're seeing that playing out already. We're also seeing it playing out in real time with housing data, with the number mm-hmm. of transactions slowing significantly year over year. And uh, as well, uh, we we see that um, in the price point of certain markets now having changed materially from earlier this year. So all in all, this suggests slowing in the Canadian economy and perhaps puts the Bank of Canada in play for some rate cuts here before the Fed. Uh, and perhaps by the middle of the year. Great context. And, and just to put a finer point on it, I know in the blue book, your your overweight fixed income as an overall asset class. But within that asset class, there's some, some nuance within that. So your overweight investment grade uh, corporates, but market weight sovereign. What, what's behind that view? One of the things behind that view is that when you look at the corporate profile out there, when you look at companies in general, they've been quite profitable for the last few years. And we see that translating into some relatively sustained strength of cash flow. Um, And this is particularly the case for investment-grade companies or even the highest quality area within the high-yield bond market, so Mm. the double B area. So we're seeing, uh, you know, relatively strong uh, fundamental profile for those businesses. And we expect that that's going to continue, notwithstanding that there could be some growth slowdown here globally, but it's it's really something that, uh, you know, we expect will be um, like momentum that will carry uh, in, from corporate fundamentals well into the year. Spreads, the, the, the amount of extra yield we get in corporate debt over government debt, those spreads are not exceptionally cheap today, uh, but they're roughly fair value, we think. So collecting that extra carry from the, from the highest quality areas of high yield or investment grade corporates, we think makes some sense. 
And it would only be in the case where we have a more meaningful slowdown, where we're looking at a deeper recession, that we think that then you'd have to fade those those markets and and reduce that exposure. We don't see that in the cards right now. So uh, we think you maintain a, a small overweight in investment grade corporates and take the extra yield. Got it. And then your view on high yield, your underweight high yield, and that just follows uh, your comments on economic weakness, or is there anything more to address there? It's really a follow-on, Matt. I mean, you know, we we're, I think it really it's a selective underweight is the way we, I'd suggest. Right. Uh, so in general, with a broad basket of high yield, you have different quality within that basket. You have some higher quality companies that have, you know, more financial flexibility and have business models that can withstand a growth slowdown. And then you have some very speculative companies that are over-levered and ultimately, sure. you know, very, very cyclical. And, you know, we want to be fading that latter group. We want to be underweight that. Um, now, we've seen spreads, you know, behave quite well within the high-yield market. So pricing today does not suggest a major rise in defaults. And we do not expect to see in 2024 a major default cycle underway. Um, it'll be gradually rising. Uh, we'll see that really just in that lower quality basket where uh, companies that have gone just a little too far in their debt, capital structure, uh, over-levering themselves, uh, they're going to they're run into some problems. So again, uh, an underweight there, but really think of it as a, a selective underweight uh, focused on the lowest quality basket. Great. Uh, perfect context. Leslie, you've been on the podcast uh, many times uh, throughout the past year, and a lot of your comments always uh, sort of talk about the trade-off between uh, earnings and rates. Given Steve's view on rates being stable to negative, does this make you bullish on equities for next year? Well, Matt, it is true that uh, in the fundamental lexicon, lower interest rates by, by definition should be positive for equities. And this is because obviously the multiples paid for stocks can rise with lower interest rates because of the discounting mechanism for earnings. Secondly, lower interest rates are also stimulative to the economy and lower interest rates mean lower cost to service debt. So there are some positive drivers uh, with lower interest rates, but stocks right. moved very quickly, as we saw recently, to price in a future of lower rates. Um, but here's where we have some reservations. And I fully acknowledge that, you know, generally the first move at the end of a hiking cycle is higher for equities. And we've seen that. My reservations stem from the fact that we're only just beginning to see the impact of higher rates on the U.S. economy. Of course, mm. Canada and, and Europe are about six months into their own respective slowdowns. So when I assess the potential headwinds, I still see economic growth as the big one because the U.S. is the biggest economy in, in the world. And we know that this is an overhang for corporate earnings. Um, inflation coming down also means that pricing power will start to wane for companies. They've been um, certainly not shy about passing on higher prices to us, the consumer, and, and to businesses. I mean, we see that in, in our own world today. Right. And the other side to that is that wages tend to be sticky on the upside. You know, when, when prices are coming down, it's not like companies can go back to the people and say, Actually, now we're going to start to pay you less. Um, we know we know that's sure. almost impossible to implement. So I think earnings momentum in general is going to be challenged with this backdrop. The other headwinds that we talked about in the blue book include things like the resumption of payment of student loans in the United States, um, declining fiscal support as well. 
And then sentiment, which I always like to analyze, that's the behavioral aspect of investing. Can, it can prove to be fairly fickle, whether it's in the context of elevated geopolitical risk or an unpredictable or uncertain election outcome in the U.S. next year. So there's lots of headwinds, I think, overall for equities that kind of build on um, creating a case that sort of counters, if you will, the uh, declining interest rate story. And so our conclusion on this point is that the balance of risk and return is a little more skewed towards the risk side than the return side for equities uh, when compared with bonds. And that's what's leading us to conclude that right now it's prudent to continue our view around the moderate underweight for equities. That's a great context. Uh, so it sounds like earnings growth uh, and the concerns about earnings growth and economic resiliency overpower that of, of any uh, rate uh, moves. Going back to the recommendations, um, so you're moderately underweight uh, equities, but within that equity piece, uh, you're actually market weight across the different uh, economies across the world. Why is that? I know, Matt, it's not a very bold call. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a little tricky when you're looking at relative markets in the context of our global investment committee, which comes out with the recommendations for uh, the blue book in, in, in the context of you're looking at the outlook for indices, right? S and P 500 TSX, and as opposed to certain aspects of an indice or picking stocks with, within an indice. So all this to say that it, there are always opportunities within markets. When you look at things on a fundamental bottom-up sure. basis. Right. But overall, from an indice lens, it was hard for us to differentiate which market would be um, the dominant one for this year, which geography. And there's a few reasons for that. So I'm going to sort of take us around the world, if, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're going to go on, on, a, on a tour. And we're going to start at home here okay, in, in Canada and uh, where we're all sitting today. Clearly, our, our market, the Canadian uh, stock market has lagged due to its construct being dominated by um, financials and energy concentration and a lower weight in the higher growth technology consumer sectors compared with the S&P 500. Um, so the heavyweights uh, in our financials are, of course, the Canadian banks. And what we've seen in their most recent earnings reports and, and throughout the year is the reemergence of cost discipline pretty much across the board. Um, so I think that that's really good for the outlook for um, the Canadian banking sector. Um, they tend to do very well when they are exercising discipline and cost. And the market structure for Canadian banks is, is quite attractive. In other periods in history, when um, uh, we finished uh, tightening cycles, um, our monetary tightening cycles, financials have actually led out of the um, recoveries. So areas like or periods like 1984, 94, for example. Um, so I think the historical trends are are on our side. Um, so that's a good thing. So that's an area that I think will create a little bit of momentum uh, here in Canada. And also, obviously, overall, Canadian stocks are probably the best value of any market in the developed world right now. I think the only caveat to Canada is the cyclicality of our market. Sure. So a global economic slowdown will certainly create a, a sentiment headwind where people won't sort of seek out Canadian equities 
so that's sort of the the pros and cons uh, for Canada, but probably overall an attractive entry point into Canadian stocks for the long-term equity investor. Now, let's turn our attention south of the border. Obviously, in the U.S., we've seen markets really driven by a concentration of returns in a, in a few stocks, the so-called Magnificent Seven, and uh, what we think the opportunity could be in the U.S. while those stocks take a pause because they've been such strong drivers in the market, are, is, is a broadening out of U.S. markets in, you know, whether it's the other 493 stocks or moving into the small mid-cap space in, in the U.S. So we think headwinds at the top market level, but so much opportunity in the U.S. for a broadening um, as people rotate into more attractively valued uh, names and particularly in the U.S. small mid cap space, which has been completely ignored um, mm. over the last uh, year or so. Turning our attention, um, let's uh, let's go across the ocean here uh, internationally. Sure. Um, so international benchmarks bring together, you know, the EFA markets, so Europe and, and the Far East. And I think that the fundamentals in Japan continue to be strong. We talk about in the blue book some of the structural things that are really boosting the outlook for Japanese equities, namely improved um, shareholder policies or governance across Japanese companies trying right. to sort of catch up to the North American view towards corporate governance. And then the second being improvements in return on capital employed. And that's really a, a, a real quality metric that we're starting to see more and more of in Japan where these companies are catching up again to their North American counterparts. So overall, uh, we continue to see uh, Japan as an attractive market. Europe, on the other hand, as a bit of an offset uh, for the region, for IFA, um, due to the slowdown, uh, similar probably to what we're experiencing here in, in Canada uh, across the region. So more headwinds uh, for European equities as well, but they've become more attractively priced compared to other markets, maybe not as cheap as, as what we're seeing here in, in Canada. So on a relative basis, Japan strong in the region. Um, Europe, a, a little bit of an offset there, not right. to say there isn't opportunity. And then finally, let's um, end here on our trip around the world uh, in emerging markets, certainly attractive opportunity, attractive valuations and, and opportunity. We are still waiting to see improvement in Chinese data, of course, Chinese economic data. Sure. Um, that's an area that I think in the last two years, we've said, um, you know, we're still waiting for her and, and said this could be the contrarian call. So we're kind of three years in a row um, uh, holding out some optimism around an economic um, uh, a resumption of, of growth, certainly in, in China, um, which has really been weighed down by um, structural issues in, in the property market right. and a very slow recovery. I mean, it shows the difference in, in our economies because the recovery coming out, the post-COVID recovery in, in the developed world in, in North America was very strong and quick. Um, people were spending, as I said, you know, with with um, lack of discipline. We're, we haven't seen that so much in China. It's been a slower recovery. So I think, like, we expect that all markets follow a cyclical pattern. So a cyclical recovery will eventually emerge. Timing just seems to be um, elusive right now. 
and uh, and but other areas in, in the emerging markets have um, really benefited from most countries' view towards diversification across the region for manufacturing. So I think there's some attractive opportunities in emerging markets. And with the end of the hiking cycle, um, that that's, that, that sort of takes some of the momentum away from the U.S. dollar and a weaker U.S. dollar could be good for emerging markets as well. So that takes you around the world and gives you the pluses and minuses around the different regions and why um, we think that there's attractive opportunities in all regions. Not one region stood out as better or worse than the other. And I think this is really a reminder about the importance of diversification when it comes right. to geographies in equity investing. Right. An important reminder after the tear that the U.S. has been on uh, for so long. Uh, probably time to look at your portfolio and see if you're overweight there uh, specifically. You mentioned a few times uh, throughout the tour around the world that uh, within each of those different markets, there's different pockets for active managers or different themes that, that may be attractive. There are two themes that we'll uh, touch on the podcast or appear in the Blue Book. The first is sort of this green energy transition. It's been a theme that, uh, that we've spoken about for uh, a few years now. Last year was actually a pretty tough year for the green energy transition. You think it, look at things like offshore wind, just general returns within the, within that sector, uh, really challenged. Um, so what gives you confidence that it's going to be a viable theme going into 2024? Well, I think turning to the themes, this is the part that I think gets us really excited about the future. You know, there's a lot of headwinds that we can talk about around, around the economy, but the themes are really what um, we think have durability when it comes to fundamentals for investing. And of course, the context of your question around um, green energy, there were some specific factors that weighed on the sector last year, which we generally viewed as temporary and have created the opportunity uh, for this year, which is why this was one of our three uh, significant themes to highlight. So the year 2023 started in in, in this um, theme with... Uh, headwinds that came from an overhype in 2022 that started with the Inflation Reduction Act, which right. um, resulted in an overshoot, so many names in, in the sector. So we kind of started with a very high bar and it was almost like we could only but disappoint. This was a sector in many cases that uh, also reacted very negatively to higher interest rates. Hmm. Um, secondly, cost inflation for the big renewable energy projects also served as an overhang. And then the third thing was logistics like connectivity to the grid also proved to be a headwind. And we talk about that extensively in the uh, in the blue book. So so why do we believe this sector uh, will be important and a dominant investor theme going forward? Um, well, I think the first one, let's start at the top of our conversation with Steve. And it was about lower interest rates. So that, of course, yeah. improves the economics and the cost of debt. Um, the second is clearly supply chain pressures have eased, removing the overhang of costs spiraling higher um, at that point, you know, without a ceiling. And then the third is things like grid connectivity. Um, it's really just a matter of time to solve for those uh, logistical problems. Um, another example would be um, uh, charging capacity for EVs. Things like that will eventually be solved through prudent right. planning time, resources, uh, money. Um, so those are just temporary headwinds. We think that the secular importance of this trend really dominates the cyclical, which I think we hit a cyclical point in 2023. And the secular is, is really going to overcome the cyclical 
uh, for next year. So this continues to be a theme that we think uh, is highly investable. That's great, Leslie. And I think when we have talked about the green energy transition, most of the time people gravitate towards thinking of this as an equity story. Steve, how does fixed income markets get uh, involved in the green energy transition? And what's your view, I guess, of 2024? Well, Matt, yeah, there's a lot to to do with fixed income in in, uh, green energy or an energy transition and and really decarbonization in general. Um, You know, when you think about what, for example, uh, we see in in Canada, uh, with the Sustainable Finance Action Council, there, for example, have looked at what does it take? What will Canada have to do to fund uh, a zero carbon future? So, getting to be carbon neutral by 2050, I think their estimate is we have to spend somewhere in the area of eight to 10 times what we're currently spending. So, if you think about that as an extra 100 to $125 billion per year, mm. that, that has to be funded. These, these are for projects that either fund transition activity or ultimately um, a green activity that has to be funded. And it's usually through debt markets where that funding happens. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, we've been a big part of this already at McKenzie with, uh, we have a, a, all of our portfolios uh, where appropriate are, are positioning in and, and funding some green activity. Um, and we have specific strategies that we run in uh, that are sustainable fixed income strategies, uh, but you know beyond this, this is a a massive uh, effort to fund transition activities where we're reducing uh, carbon through either uh, you know production of of new fuels such as blue hydrogen or where we're looking to uh, produce concrete with um, carbon sequestration. Right. Uh, these types of activities are transition activities, and ultimately, uh, we also then have. Uh, to fund a lot of activity around just green energy production. So you know, can we produce enough for EV batteries, for example, uh, to be able to uh, continue to increase the fleet of electric vehicles in the market? Uh, those, those types of activities are, are all part of the, the, the funding that we need to commit to. And, and so a fixed income market plays a huge role in this. Um, and uh, this is a continuing build. I think what we've seen in Canada is that there is um, a willingness to look to the future and look at uh, the the risks around certain businesses, looking at the potential around businesses that are trying to uh, to decarbonize. And uh, this is a meaningful activity for many Canadians. So, uh, you know, we think that it's a great, uh, it's a great area of investing to look at. And then the fixed income side, we have, you know, ample reason to look at any company uh, we look for best value for risk in fixed income, sure. and uh, that can include um, you know green activities or transition activities, as the case may be. Great context, Steve. The other theme that uh, I want to uh, address on uh, the podcast is uh, the growth and innovation theme uh, that's been identified uh, in the Blue Book. Leslie, maybe I'll turn back to you. I've started the green energy transition by discussing sort of the disappointment in offshore wind and, and the returns in general. This is entirely opposite. Clearly, growth and innovation is uh, what's really led the Magnificent Seven to a lot of their return in 2023. What are you expecting in 2024? We think that this is an example of a theme that is enduring and will continue to dominate uh, markets, certainly uh, this year. 
Um, as we all know, necessity is, is the mother of invention. So in the face of higher costs, companies look to technology to solve their problems. And that will continue to be the case. And I think we can all reflect on experiences that we've had more recently, whether it's you know digital checkouts in the grocery store or when you walk into a restaurant, digital ordering, ordering from your table, using a QR code, um, all of these things that are used to take costs out, out of the system. Um, you know, recently over, over the weekend, I was at the Sphere in Las Vegas, this new entertainment complex, and they mm. have robots that are tour guides. It's, cool. it's almost un- <laughs> unfathomable to see what, what people can do with, with artificial intelligence um, today. And so obviously we think that growth and innovation continues to be important. We're trying to seek out the opportunities that that can endure regardless of the economic environment that we painted uh, for you today, where these are companies that their products or services are so highly valued that they're really necessary for the user. So, I mean, you can't see someone pulling out an, an electronic checkout, for example, in, in a grocery store or something like that. Like we're, we're moving more down that path and not there's not a cyclicality to that. Right. So we think of the innovative companies as part of your durable growth aspect of your portfolio. And I like to call them kind of like the Levi's jeans because they never go out of style. And so that that top down macro view becomes less relevant hmm. uh, with durable growth or in- innovative companies. Of course, as you mentioned, we've seen a concentration of returns in the biggest players. And so part of the opportunity that we see really setting up here is kind of goes back to the broadening theme that I talked about in the U.S., but is the fantastic opportunities that exist beyond the magnificent seven. And we don't get those opportunities very often where people are just so focused on a narrow amount of stocks that there's a bunch of opportunity happening um, beneath the surface where there's been less attention, but yet equally strong fundamentals. And so that's why the growth and innovation um, theme we think uh, will still have the opportunity to bring outsized returns to investors for 2024. Great context makes a lot of sense. And going beyond that magnificent seven uh, to look for opportunities also makes a lot of sense from a valuation perspective. Maybe we turn uh, the rest of the conversation to to talk about risk a little bit. Geopolitical risk has certainly been a hot topic this year, and there's lots coming up in 2024. I think The Economist ran a uh, had an article about the 10 things to look forward to next year, and seven of them were geopolitical. This is obviously The Economist, a, a magazine focused on business and finance and, and that type of thing. So whether it's uh, ongoing elections into next year or wars or heightened international tensions, Steve... How do you think this is going to impact fixed income markets? Well, I mean, any market is really a mechanism for discounting risks, right? And putting that into the price. And we think about growth slowdown that we talked about earlier and, you know, some of the impacts that geopolitical risk can have on that, you know, that that would just uh, ratify a notion that the central banks may have to step in and, hmm. and uh, you know, ease concern in the market. So whether those concerns are coming from, you know, growth itself slowing down or whether there's other effects that are that are coming into play such as uh, financial markets and the ability for you know banks interbank lending and so on across border lending to continue those those types of risks that we've seen play out really in in other contexts in the past 15 years or so are unlikely this year so really it's the growth slowdown context 
when you think about geopolitical risks hitting hitting markets, um, one of the things I think about is the sort of medium term effects that can kind of creep up on you. And and you know, we think about frictions, for example, in global trade. And mm-hmm. we've had several years already where we've seen frictions becoming a little bit worse in certain areas um, around technology, uh, where there's there's real lines being drawn um, cross border uh, trade and certain types of tech products are, have really um, become a huge political issue in in multiple uh, multiple environments. Um, we've seen geopolitics impacting. Uh, the way business leaders are looking at the world regionally. And so this this can change cost structure. This can change inflation dynamics then around some of the goods and, and services that we use today and causing right. inflation, again, to be stickier than expected. So when I think about those medium-term risks, I think about it manifesting in the way that we're used to living our lives, used to paying for things in our lives, and ultimately having to face a greater cost hurdle, perhaps around some things that we consume, because we're no longer able to access them the same way that we did. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, when I, that's my main concern thinking into 2024. Geopolitics, I think, are always there. We always have issues to think about. There are certainly uh, obvious issues today around armed conflict and war that is happening in Europe and, and uh, in, in uh, the Middle East. And we we, we have to be very much concerned about uh, the human and economic impacts that those are uh, those are causing. And uh, we, we're, we can, unfortunately, the market can at times grow used to those. And those can, can, you know, if they worsen or cause supply chain disruptions in some ways can have a, uh, a detrimental impact on economies and on households and businesses. So we, those are the sort of left tail events that we will come up from time to time. But uh, beyond that, it's the, the sort of gradual creep of inflation and the gradual hit to economic uh, hmm. well-being that I'm worried about in, as I look forward in 2024 and 2025. That's great, Steve. Leslie, anything to add from an equity perspective, specifically on geopolitical? I think the only thing that I would say is that, of course, geopolitical risks are certainly heightened right now. And we've seen the markets pretty much shrug these risks off. Complacency can become a risk. As Steve said, you know, markets are a discounting mechanism for risk. And so for investors, they could be surprised if that risk starts to be more priced into their riskier assets. So we we should ensure that our portfolios are positioned to endure uh, what could be specific left tail risks in certain markets with diversification. That's great. Maybe we'll conclude the podcast by just asking a simple question. I'll start with you, Leslie. What keeps you up at night? What big risks have we not talked about that uh, that you're focused on? That is not a simple question. <laughs> I think the risks that keep us up at night are the things we don't know about. Uh, right. Every year we've entered the year with a view as, as we like to do. And the thing that um, ends up you know, popping up throughout the year is something that we could not have predicted. Pandemic, war. I mean, these are major uh, market issues to digest. And so it's what we don't know that keeps me up at night. Steve, same question to you. Yeah, I think, you know, we have a we have a thesis around global growth slowing and, and regional growth slowing um, in particular, more so in Canada. Uh, one of the things that I think is uh, think about is you know that we have the potential that 
we have a much more dramatic slowdown. And, you know, this is not something that's priced into the market today and it's not priced into credit spreads and it's not priced into some, you know, areas of the equity market. So that to me, it would be the, the risk. I mean, the main risk that we would worry about here, if, if we end up with a, you know, a softer landing or something where there's a, you know, an economic growth story that really is quite robust with inflation calming and central banks really having to to do less tightening, less financial tightening, remove financial tightening, in fact, during the year. That that's something that, you know, we think is a is obviously going to benefit a number of parts of the financial markets and, and different asset classes. So the bigger risk to me is that we see a more material slowing because central banks are are uh, likely to want to hold rates a little bit higher here in the first part of the year. But again, uh, that's not our base call for the year. But if you're looking for a, a risk that I think about, that would be it. Steve, Leslie, thank you for spending so much time with me, walking you through your views on what's going to happen in 2024 and reflect a little bit about the year that was 2023. Thanks again. Thank you, Matt. Thanks very much, Matt. Always appreciate it. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 